You may have noticed that Psalm 73 is rather heavily redacted as I uh, had you had it read. Um, it starts out uh, on a very positive affirmation, truly God is good to the upright. But then the, the psalmist immediately says, uh, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. And he goes on to refer to uh, the bitterness that he felt about those who were not acknowledging God, but who were doing well. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. It's amazing then, at the end of the psalm, what a personal journey he's been on spiritually, because he ends with one of the most beautiful affirmations. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge to tell of all your works. Now, the, the psalm was edited down a little bit, not only because it's long and it, it traces his journey of transformation, um, but it was also edited down because <clears throat> I wouldn't say he gets all the way there through the psalm. The, the middle parts are where he is uh, really um, hoping that God takes care of those arrogant people in a pretty, pretty definitive way. So uh, we, we left that part out. You can go back and look at it in its entirety if you want to, and you can see the raw human emotions and very real journey this person who loves God is on. The turning point between the bitter, envious heart of the pilgrim of the believer, and that beautiful affirmation, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He ends content and trusting God. And the kicker is in verses 16 through 17. So he's mulling over and over. You know how you stew on things that seem unfair, and you get yourself all worked up. But he said, But when I thought of how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. His transformation was aided by being in the place of worship, putting himself in the presence of God. You probably, uh, if you've... Uh, well, I'm not going to make assumptions. I think that I have said before that I, I wish the official mission statement of the United Methodist Church were worded a little differently. The official mission statement of the United Methodist Church is uh, to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. I love the, the transformation of the world imagery. Uh, I don't think it's a bad statement, but I, I, I feel like it's misleading. And this week I kind of put my finger on, on why I, I am a little uncomfortable with it. I think that it takes uh, 
disciples of Jesus Christ as kind of finished products and, and, and they're made. Uh, and to me, uh, there's a lot of work that goes into following Jesus and continuing to be transformed. I think it makes it sound like our mission is to come to church, believe in Jesus, start doing Jesus stuff, and then we'll transform the world. And I think, this is not ruled out in the statement, I think it's more complicated than that. I think a transformed world really requires transformed people. I know that God, I really believe that God has amazing resources at God's disposal, but I'm pretty sure that the redemption of creation, the reconciliation of all things, will not happen without transformed people from the inside. Hearts that have gotten over bitterness, have worked their way through a jealousy and strife and wanting their enemies to get theirs. Hearts that have learned to trust God and be content and still follow. So I, I was thinking about um, one of the most extraordinary personal transformations that I've uh, heard about in recent days. And um, I have read a book that came out, I think, last year. It was uh, called Rising Over Hatred, uh, the story of awakening of a former white nationalist. It was written by Eli Saslow. I recommend it. It's not a long read, but it's pretty captivating. And it's the story of uh, Derek Black, who is uh, now, I think, 28, 29 years old. Uh, he is the person who is the godson of David Duke. Uh, and his father was the original creator of the Der Stormer website, which is dedicated to white nationalist uh, propaganda ideas, promotion of them, and um, actually has a fairly large following uh, during his lifetime. He brought it up, so I think 300, 400,000 people um, pay attention to it. His son, Derek, uh, who was, by the way, taken out of public school in third grade because he was being exposed to too much positive stuff about diversity, and, and for philosophical reasons, his parents decided to start homeschooling him. So their ideology and the ideology of their com compatriots and friends were the primary influences that were at work in his life. Uh, he was <clears throat> a very bright young man, an eager learner, and he actually uh, helped his father start a youth and young adult initiative through Der Stormer um, and did a daily talk show uh, with his father promoting white nationalist ideas. He's an only child, and his parents... Uh, allowed him to go to college at the New College of Florida, which uh, you may or, not know, may or not know, it's kind of like Antioch. It's got a, a lot of 
really free-thinking, uh, diverse ideas. Uh, small school, 800 people. When Derek went there, uh, he, over the course of several years, uh, became transformed. He ended up eventually publicly not only renouncing white nationalist ideology, but doing so publicly at great personal cost because his family who really did love him and the people who he'd really grown up with receiving a lot of care and attention from were part of who he had to distance himself from and their ideology. So a number of people have written about this extraordinary transformation because literally while he was at college for a period of time, I think almost a year, if not more, he was uh, cutting out from, you know, leaving his friends, going to a car, calling his father so they could do their daily broadcast together online, and then going back to classes. And it took a while for anybody to know really who he was. When it was discovered, there were a lot of, obviously, a lot of uh, people who were offended, outraged, concerned. And um, his transformation now uh, has gotten a, a fair amount of writing attention, not just in the book, but the Washington Post did a very long article about him and uh, after several years. And uh, some educational publications have looked into it. It's, it's an extraordinary story. What people tend to focus on as part of the influences of his transformation are uh, the fact that there were students on campus who, who uh, did protests. They did civil resistance uh, challenging, you know, <clears throat> his ideology and calling him out. There were also students who did engaged in discourse with him to kind of try to talk and change his mind. Uh, it didn't hurt that a very intelligent young woman who was his girlfriend did that. And um, of course, he took education, he took classes that gave him a different perspective on history, on uh, philosophy, on some of the things that gave him uh, another set of, of uh, uh, an advantage point on facts so that he got some new information that he was processing along with his information from his childhood and youth. But there's one aspect that I think was maybe most important of all, or certainly very important, that is not often uh, mentioned. <clears throat> uh, so I, I told you, new, new College is not large, only 800 students. There's one student there named Matthew Stevenson who was the only Orthodox Jew on campus. Being the only Orthodox Jew, there weren't a lot of other students to observe the Friday evening uh, Shabbat meal, bringing in the Sabbath with the prayers um, of Thanksgiving, with the rituals that accompany sharing the, the, the cup of wine. And, um, and Matthew Stevenson, from the time he got on campus, he decided that he would observe Shabbat in his little campus room in his apartment 
and he would invite whoever would come to sit and join him in the Sabbath service. And uh, Derek Black, because he was kind of a little bit uh, socially awkward, hadn't had opportunity to develop a lot of peer relationships, he was kind of isolated on campus. This is even before anybody knew. And he was one of the people that got invited to the Shabbat services, and he went every week, lit the candle, lifted up the cup, said the prayers. After it was made known that he was this white nationalist propagandist, Matthew Stevenson's, some of his friends stopped coming to the Shabbat service, and Matthew Stevenson, who was well aware of the anti-Semitic rhetoric associated with Der Stormer and the terrible legacy of uh, anti-Semitic propaganda and its consequences, he had a decision to make. And he decided, he decided that as long as he was able, he would keep offering the Sabbath dinner and invite Derek, and he would try not to uh, put him on the spot. If, if the conversation came up, he would engage it, but he was committed to offering hospitality and a safe space where he continued to try to build relationships. Now think of that in a young man. That is really extraordinary. And I, I, I can't help but believe that this ongoing uh, safe, welcoming space made a huge difference in the way Derek was able to process the information. And I'm impressed by the young man who had the character to think about the possibility that someone might be able to change. And I believe that the Sabbath ritual and the prayers were a huge part of that character, not only of Derek's transformation, but also of Matthew's wisdom, maturity, and ability to be an instrument of transformation. So, When Paul writes in Romans, the small part that we read in chapter 8, he is asserting boldly that prayer can be an important instrument of transformation. Not of the world so much, but first of the disciple. The disciple is transformed in prayer. So, uh, but at first it doesn't sound like he's going to go there because it starts out this passage, which, uh, by the way, I kind of take you and drop you off in the middle of uh, an argument that's been going. Uh, Paul says, you know what, God is taking this painful, uh, messy, disordered world, and in Christ he is starting to renew and restore and redeem creation. But it doesn't look like it right now. In fact, in fact, we're, we're, creation is groaning. 
And then he goes and he says, <clears throat> we don't know how to pray as we should. We do not know how to pray as we should. Any of you feel that way? We don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit is groaning on our behalf without words and picking up on this fact of not knowing whether or not we are transformed enough people to even know what to ask that God will do. Uh, now, the book that John has been leading us on in the sermon series is called Learning to Speak uh, God from Scratch. And we've been doing a different word each time, and the word this time is prayer. The author says that um, prayer, like so many things uh, in, in, in Western Christianity, has been influenced by our very consumer society so that prayer, like almost everything else, becomes something like a, an exchange. Prayer is about uh, giving and receiving. Or, um, and he talks about the, uh, anybody heard of the Acts prayer, that formula? So you start out with adoration of God, then you move on to uh, confession, uh, and then to thanksgiving, and then supplication. Uh, we try to teach it in confirmation and stuff like that. But he said that in some ways you can kind of look at that Acts prayer and say, you know what, this is um, getting God uh, all smoothed up and, and uh, building him up. And, and then it's um, confessing how much you need help and getting God's sympathy. And then it's uh, creating a positive tone with thanksgiving so that you can do the big ask. And there's a little something to that, I think. It can be that way. Uh, not only, the author says, we think about prayer in this bargaining or in this giving and receiving mentality, we also tend to think a lot more about prayer as talking rather than listening. And he actually says we need a more, in a way, a more passive view of prayer, one that leaves us more open. Well, Paul seems to be picking up on that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit sighs along with it. Some translations say the Spirit sighs. Some say it groans. What is going on when you sigh? When do we sigh? I sigh a lot. We sigh when we are uh, exasperated. <sighs> when we are uh, impatient when we are resigned, when we're frustrated, sometimes we sigh when we're sad. Sometimes we sigh out of relief. But I think it's kind of relief to be done with something that's not so great. Uh, sometimes I think teenagers, uh, 
well, maybe other people too, but teenagers seem a lot to sigh out of boredom. Um, but I think it's really more, not so much boredom as tiredness with being bored that makes people sigh. And what does a sigh do physiologically? Uh, I guess a sigh could also be a groan, like, oh, there's the groan. What does it do physiologically? It actually is a huge, deep intake of air that exhales very forcibly, and, and the sound comes out on the exhale. And physiologically, it actually has a kind of transformative function because I'm going to try to get this right. These, there are these little alveoli in your lungs, and they uh, get forced to do more of their exchanging of oxygen and carbon dioxide somehow, physiologically in a sigh. There's a, a purpose for it. It kind of wakens our system up a little bit. Um, and in fact, the author of the book, Learning to uh, Speak God from Scratch, says there have been studies done by neuroscientists who say people who uh, regularly um, meditate, which involves breathing control, and um, who do other chanting kind of meditative practices of different kinds, they've done scans on their brains, and they're actually is not only a short-term, but for people who have been praying a lot over a long period of time, it actually changes our, their brain chemistry. So prayer can actually be an instrument where not just, you know, we know our attitudes can change, but our ability, our control, we're actually physiologically changed. And that's why this, the passage goes on to say, we are transformed by being conformed to the image of God's Son. The Spirit picks up on our groanings when we do not know what to pray for and helps translate that to God who's searching our hearts and the mind of the Spirit, we kind of get drawn into the inner life of God. Yesterday, I was kind of caught by surprise uh, <clears throat> that this passage just jumped into my mind. I was at a, prayer, at, at a funeral for... Uh, it took me back to my home church, Church of the Master, which is, by the way, where Pastor Anna is uh, the pastor right now. I went back for a funeral service, and um, it was of Don Lund, who was a wonderful Christian servant. And uh, it also brought me back in connection with several of his wonderful, wonderful serving children, and some other people I'd been in youth group with. And um, a lot of the people I was in youth group with, of course, I guess we didn't, I, I didn't talk about it at the time. I didn't even know what, well, I won't say what I didn't know, but there, uh, some of them were gay. And uh, Church of the Master, I happen to know, is one of the churches to, that has got a lot of people who feel pretty strongly on different sides 
of the issue of inclusion. And there are probably a lot of people in the middle, too. And, and uh, it really hit me as I watched some of the uh, people who grew up there with me come down the aisles who were new or gay and some had their spouses with them. Uh, were they being, how did it feel to them? Had they, they hadn't been in the church for a long time. I saw a little bit, little tentativeness in a couple of people. I also saw some of the people who I, I'm pretty sure are among the people who are uh, not happy with inclusion. And um, particularly if it becomes, you know, written out of the church book of discipline. And, and some of them were really positive parts of my spiritual journey. People who, I think they have a lot of good in them. And all of a sudden, it just washed over me. Like, honestly, up until this point, I really haven't really thought, I mean, I've thought a lot about General Conference, but I haven't been really worried about it because I know who I am. I know who this church is. I'm not, I, I don't think that God's kingdom rises or falls with a, a, any church structure. Um, and, and so it, I just felt a little bit, you know, kind of peace, but at distance from it. But when I started looking around the room and thinking about the people and people whose relation, lives have been really interconnected in relationships, when I thought about a church that has people in it that are going to be affected in the quality of their community, it hit me on an emotional level and a gut level that really kind of left me speechless. And, um, and sighing. So Paul... Uh, I wonder if he thinks that Christians of his day are going to relate to this passage where he says, the spirit groans for us, it sighs for us. But I think maybe Paul put those passages in there because he wanted to challenge the church to really embrace the complex struggles, not only of the church, but of the world. And if we always wanted everything to be clear and simple emotionally and intellectually, we would not embrace the struggles of a real complex world. And there are lots of them. So Paul was trying to challenge, I think, Christians to go on. You don't have to have all the answers. Go on. Think about the needs of the world. Pray for them. Even when you don't have words, I can be at work. I really believe that the sighing that I felt yesterday as I saw the beautiful people on different sides of that issue 
and wondered about what it will be like. I think it will make me less arrogant, hopefully better tuned and equipped to be an instrument of helping understanding, maybe able to keep relationships and create a little Sabbath space where maybe transformation can happen. And I believe that prayer can create that kind of space in us and move us. One of the, uh, there are lots of tools for spiritual formation. You know, here we, we don't uh, call our, our team Christian education, which is what it's often called. We call it faith formation. We probably should call it spiritual formation. Because God wants to form us into people who can transform by conforming us more into the likeness of Christ's spirit. There are ways to think about prayer that are not those Western ways of asking, getting, talking. One of them I just want to lift up before you, and it's mentioned in the book if you have it, is Lectio Divina. So it's opening oneself up to praying with the word, knowing that the Holy Spirit may come, expecting the Holy Spirit to come and be part of that. And it's as simple as this. Take a, a, a passage of scripture that you already know, uh, just a few verses long. You can do it on a private basis with yourself or with a small group. But you uh, read out loud a passage of scripture. You observe silence and just let your mind, let it sink in. Ask yourself then, what word or phrase jumped out at me? Read it again. This time, observe silence and ask yourself, what is this stirring up inside of me? What is this making me think about? What connections am I making? Third, read it again. And this time, check in with yourself to, how am I feeling about what's been stirred up within me? And fourth time, in silence, ask yourself, what might God want me to do or be as a result of the encounter with the Spirit and the Word? If you are interested in spiritual formation and finding out more ways of being spiritually formed in prayer and different techniques, uh, you can come and talk with me. We also have someone here who is studying uh, to be a spiritual director, uh, Tresha Holdren, who's a head of prayer partners, and she would be a great resource, and I have other resources I can connect you with as well. God wants to transform the world, one transformed person at a time. And we need to give God the space to do God's holy work in us. May it be so.